the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. It's been a busy year with major stories in media, technology and the economy. Joining me in studio to discuss these and also to look ahead to 2024 is Laura Slattery, Kira O'Brien and Cliff Taylor, all of the Irish Times. I began by asking Cliff Taylor if Ireland is heading for a recession, given all of the gloomy economic forecasts that have emerged in the past couple of weeks. I don't think so, Kieran. Uh, I mean, the figures certainly show that we're, we're heading for a recession in, in terms of GDP. But we've known over many years now how they're messed up by multinationals and their activities here and the money that sloshes in and out of Ireland, some of which has little enough yeah. uh, relationship to what happens here. But but the modified domestic demand numbers have, yeah. have come down. I mean, they're almost on the floor now at this stage. Yeah. We're, we're marginally in growth territory. Certainly, if you look at, you know, the, the recent DSRI central bank analysis. So that's not good either, is it? No, it's not. I was just going to come out of that to say that while it's not a recession, we certainly have experienced a slowdown. And I think a pretty significant slowdown in, in, in domestic economic growth. Part of that is due to businesses investing less. Um, some of that multinational-led, some of it led by the retail sector and other sectors that are under pressure as well. But consumer spending growth has slowed as well. It's still still nicely in positive territory, up a couple of percent. Uh, but there's no doubt that the cost of living crisis and higher interest rates have taken a chunk out of, out of consumers' income, have damaged confidence have hit discretionary spending. I think particularly among, you know, lower earners, the squeeze, the so-called squeeze middle or whatever, uh, talking to someone who was who runs kind of four courts across the country there recently and he was saying that a lot of that discretionary spending from people stopping for petrol is, has, has tapered off apart from perhaps the people who pull up on the BMWs and the more expensive cars who still have a few bob to spend. But the... Uh, the average saloons and SUVs, if you like, are getting the petrol and a cup of coffee and and heading on heading on down the road. Yeah, so, have you uh, seen the cost of an SUV now? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure well, the lower income people are going around in SUVs. Well, I suppose I, I'm thinking of the everything's an SUV at this stage, Kieran. But yeah, I, I know true. what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Not the big Range Rovers for sure. There is a lot of anecdotal stuff going around that in January we're going to see a lot of restaurants and cafes yeah. uh, close. That you know, once this Christmas, not a rush uh, because. Again, anecdotally, the trade is telling us that things are quieter this Christmas than they were in previous years, and previous years were impacted by COVID and so on. Um, but and it's harder to to make it work in restaurants and cafes now because you're, you're having to charge ridiculous prices, really, for you know ordinary food. Yeah, I've heard this from a few places now. Um, most recently, from someone who was who was visiting Cork recently, I was talking to a lot of businesses down there, a lot of small businesses, a lot of restaurants, and a lot of talk about. You know, places being shuttered in the new year, uh, and I think you're right. I think part of it is down to this: what we were talking about there, the the lower level of discretionary spending. Part of it is down to uh, labour shortages, finding people, having to pay people more, and part of it is due to rising costs. Because, as you say, to make ends meet now, uh, you know, for your cup of coffee or your breakfast or your roll or whatever, that the 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 required price is now gone a lot higher. Consumers are pushing back a bit at that uh, and, and businesses are in difficulty and of course big increase now in the minimum wage coming through in January various other costs and businesses sick uh, pay more sick pay rules pension yeah. auto enrolment is coming All extra PRSI costs and uh, IBEC has put the, the cost say, the cumulative cost at 4 billion, 4 billion. so I, I, IBEC is becoming out, coming out on that and I think I, you know while, while there is 
an individual case for a lot of these things. Uh, and while um, bigger businesses can probably take it on, I think it is it is a hit for for the smaller businesses now. And you know, many many obviously, as we know, were hard hit during COVID, and kind of just about got through COVID. So there is kind of a, a build up of a build up of wounds there and a build up of financial difficulties, I suppose. Uh, and 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 unfortunately for some, I think, uh, as you say, there will be there will be closures and uh, perhaps a bit of a bit of difficulty in in, in the new year in, in that sector. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Loris Lattery was a really busy year media wise, particularly for RTE. It was the big story of the summer: the payment scandal around what uh, Ryan Tuberty was mm. receiving, and ultimately it led to his departure from RTE. Much to the, I mean, if you'd said to somebody in January that Ryan Tuberty would leave RTE uh, by September or whatever it was, uh, I think they probably would have fainted at the idea. Yeah, even in May, uh, you know, when he was doing his swan song episode of of The Late Late Show, there was no expectation that he would ever (laughs) leave RTE entirely. He was always going to be on the radio. And if you look back at the start of the year in January, you know, RTE was advertising for a new director general. They're looking for uh, for somebody who would take the organisation forward in an evolving media landscape. Because Steve Forbes was coming to the, naturally uh, coming was to naturally the end of her term. He was naturally coming to the end of her term in July. But instead, what we had was a kind of a sort of a devolving media landscape for, for RTE, just uh, on the cusp of uh, midsummer. This really bombshell statement uh, admission that since March they had been looking very seriously, um, the board, at two questionable invoices that had been marked consultancy fees. And these related to two of the three €75,000 payments that were made to Ryan Turbury as part of a side deal that had been verbally agreed by D Forbes with um, Turbury's agent, Noel Kelly. So that arrangement dated back to 2020, but it was only coming to light uh, in March as part of a routine audit. And really that set in train, you know, events that were really cataclysmic for RTE. uh, um, And, you know, they didn't do Ryan Tuppity's reputation any good either. But ultimately, it was this was a matter for RTE management. And Ryan Tuppity, of course, as we know, has a new gig on on, uh, Virgin Radio UK starting in the year. He'll be able to move on. Um, But RTE is mired in this mess because as a result of the breach of trust, a really serious outrage, um, in the undisclosed um, payments and, and the understated um, salaries that they had declared. Um, license fee sales and renewals fell off a cliff and they were left seeking even more um, additional funding from the government than they already needed. So they got, I mean, the government has bailed them out. They're giving them more than 50 million, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, there was a 16 million that was already agreed um, as part of the uh, Future of Media Commission process. And then there was another figure of 40 million that was made uh, contingent on, on on a set of cuts. But like, you know, this isn't even making up for what's being lost in the, the licence fee side of things. And um, the cuts are, are quite deep. Now, next year... You know, there's going to be uh, you know only three episodes rather than four. A fair city for for much of the year. There's going to be a summer production. That's really pause. a big deal. I mean, well, I mean, it's a costly. Can we live without one episode of Fair City a week? Well, yeah. I mean, look, if you don't watch Fair City, then it doesn't <laughs> affect you. But if you're fan, it's just it's kind of like almost like all of these things add up. The cancelling sort of in-house uh, summer Sunday evening factual shows. 
Um, they're saying uh, there's not going to be an in-house, you know, Saturday night show. Like all of those things in isolation might not mean very much, but, you know, they're looking for production savings and news and sports. They're reducing the acquired programmes uh, budget. You have all these politicians complaining about repeats on RTE. Well, I'm afraid that's only going to become more of a phenomenon. And then I suppose you could say more seriously then they are looking for 40 redundancies next year and that they expect 400 people to leave the the, the organisation by 2028. Um, so it's quite a, a sort of a multi-million you know, you know, euro shrinking of this organiza- organisation happening. And maybe it would have happened anyway, but the Tuberty incident has completely um, accelerated the process and um, left you, it in a bad way. When you look at it now, Laura, in the cold light of day and the dust has settled and all of that, wasn't much to do about nothing. Well, it's funny. I was on on holiday, as you know. I went on holiday just before this story broke, and but I remember like reading about it, and I I was personally annoyed by it because I had reported on those figures um, for the top ten highest paid presenters each year, and th- those figures, in, in, with respect to Ryan <laughs> Tuberty, they were just they were just not true. And I think, you know, as Shun Nirahili, the chairwoman of RTE, said at one of the Oireachtas meetings, it looked very much like an act designed to deceive because it made Ryan Turbody's pay fall below €500,000 threshold. So it made his, it looked like he'd taken a pay cut when he hadn't and his pay was actually more than €500,000. It gave a false impression. It gave a very bad false impression. And look, we can't, I, I can't, nobody can check what money is going into people's bank account. But there are certain obligations on RTE as a public body to declare this information. Now, you could argue, you know, whether or not the salary information should be there or not. But um, it is. So we need to be able to trust the figures that we receive. And if they're not correct, then it, it makes a mockery of the whole thing. So I was incredibly annoyed about that. I will say that some of the other things that came to light later in the summer about the behaviour of the um, commercial department and the practices that they had, the hospitality outlays, um, which were surfaced because they used thread through the same barter count as the payments um, to Tuberty, that some of that, you know, if, if that had happened in another year, if that had been revealed at another time, it might have passed, you know, through the news agenda a lot quicker than it did. Um, you know, there's definitely, you could make an argument um, that the commercial department was, you know, thought it was just doing its job of maximising commercial revenues. So, you know, there, there is maybe some things were blown up, but the whole picture as a whole points to one of... Um, maybe, you know, a part of RTE where the controls over the spending was not what it should have been. And then at the same time, you know, there were stories of, of journalists um, having to uh, make do with, you know, a- ageing equipment, you know, falling apart studios and, you know, pittance freelance rates, a whole lot of, you know, litany of trade union issues, uh, industrial relations battles over the years. So there was a kind of a two sides of RTE and um, the rank and file, you know, they uh, uh, probably out of everyone, they were the angriest, I think, about this story. Cliff Taylor, a lot of people, as Laura has mentioned, stop paying their licence fee. Now, maybe it's not because of this, maybe it's just coincidence, but I assume in a lot of cases it probably is down to this. Um, so is the licence fee as a concept, is it dead? Well, it's in trouble for sure. Um, I think the government want to hold on to it, but there is these uh, ongoing discussions now about how how RTE is going to be funded in the longer term uh, as a public sector broadcaster suggestions that 
it should be funded by the state, uh, that there should be some other mechanism for paying for, paying for it uh, because the licence fee is, uh, has run its course, if you like, uh, as a concept. Do we really want the state funding RTE? Not ideally, no, but we so have it had... It is anyway. <laughs> it is anyway. We have by had, default, but yeah. We've, but had, we've had this dual model and I suppose, you, you know, there's also questions, do we, do we really want uh, commercial revenue funding RTE? You know, there's, there, there are a lot of questions there. Uh, that I suppose have have come up and have bubbled up as this controversy has uh, has gone on. Um, the uh, commission uh, a couple of years ago recommended a state funding model for the organisation, uh, and and that it you know it should move to that basis. Obviously, there's been pushback from politicians because of the cost of that. Uh, they've been looking for cutbacks in RTE and commitments from RTE in terms of uh, in terms of how it's going to operate in the future. Possibly not ideal either. Um, you know where does where does the state insisting on proper housekeeping end and uh, you know interfering in editorial policy start if you like? So I think I think I think it's a difficult territory and there's been a bit of a kind of a. Why don't we just have revenue collect the license fee? That'll put the fear of God. It would the people. yeah, it would it would and uh, revenue have been pulled in before in various other areas. Pro- work for the property tax. Not least as I was going to say, the local property tax <laughs> certainly worked there. Yeah. So, why not? Why not, indeed? I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, a, a third of the public funding that RTE receives is already not coming from, you know, the licence fee that's collected. It comes, you know, via the Department of Social Protection. And it's just, you know, it's kind of shifting. But isn't that licence fees, uh, essentially licence yeah, fees for re- elderly respect, people? It's in respect of people receiving yeah. the household benefits package, but it's not actually collected. So... You know, the, that model has, it was already kind of under pressure. As we know, some people don't have television sets and they're, they're not actually eligible to pay. Um, so the, there's been a huge breakdown, I think, in the sort of the, the, the unity <laughs> uh, of the concept and, and the idea that as a whole country, uh, people pay this fee and, that the, you know, it, they receive a, a public service broadcaster that, that addresses you know, Irish society and the economy and news and drama and sport. And it's very hard now. For, it's, not, it's almost impossible, I would say, for to reverse that. What you can try and do is, is slow down the breakdown of that, that concept. But I don't see the government rushing to do much about it except for maybe manage the decline. How can harnessing the power of AI help drive your business? At EY, we combine leading business expertise with cutting-edge technology and capabilities. Working directly with you to plan your strategy, we will accelerate your AI-enabled transformation. To learn more, visit ey.ai forward slash IE. Kira Bryan, you've been covering technology all year. What was the biggest story for you this year? I think the biggest story uh, globally would have been AI. I think we've started to see the the emergence of generative AI. What is generative AI? Just explain to our listeners what generative AI is. So basically, it's it's artificial intelligence that is more conversational. So the AI and the machine learning that we've been using up until now, you know, you have to have. I suppose you have to you have to ask it the right questions. So with this one, like you know, you can have a conversation with, so you can ask it a question and it'll spit you back a load of information. But you don't have to ask it for specific things. So if I ask, you know, who is Kieran Hancock, uh, journalist Kieran Hancock, it will tell me all the information it can find 
about you. Uh, and then I can ask it follow-up questions. Um, and as the technology has advanced, as it has a pace over the last year, uh, you know, it's getting that bit smarter and that bit more user-friendly. So you don't have to be very kind of prescriptive in what you ask it to do. Um, the problem then is, like, I, I, you're just having that conversation about, you know, about RTE is that, you know, people are now worried that it's going to replace them in creative jobs. And we've already seen that come in where, you know, people are using generative AI to write kind of stories. They're using it to um, to come up with art ideas. And, I you know, Virgin some of them... Media, uh, Laura can correct me here, but I think Virgin Media are using it for Ar- Ireland AM, um, They it? used it for a special edition of Ireland AM where they used it to write the script, which, uh, you know, I, I think it was actually quite a clever idea because they were kind of treating it as a kind of a, a comic concept <laughs> look at how bad the AI is um, so I think they had a bit of fun with it yeah it was a good idea right okay it is kind of a comic concept but it's rapidly becoming a problem I mean we've seen what happened in the US you know there were strikes over this and the idea that you know you could replace entire script writers with AI and doing basic tasks and you know we've always been sold this idea that AI will replace the jobs that we don't want to do the problem is is what if you actually do want to do those jobs and this is the, the, the kind of thing that we've seen but you know up until fairly recently there's been and there, there still are issues don't get me wrong they've, they've ironed out a lot of them but like when it comes to stuff like hallucinations where the AI will just make something up because you when you ask you know, say the likes of ChatGPT or the, the, the initial iterations of ChatGPT uh, you ask them a question you don't see where you didn't see where it dragged that information from. So it could make random stuff up. So, for example, when I started using ChatGPT just as a test and I asked it about me, you know, what does it know about me? It told me with inc- with very, very you know, strong confidence that I was a journalist for the Irish Independent, uh, a publication I obviously don't work for and have never worked for. And it did the same for an awful lot of, of the same queries that I asked. You know, it, it had some basic information about one journalist, so it extrapolated it to all journalists. And you saw people kind of, you know, fall foul of that. Uh, there was a, a lawyer who used it to draft a, a legal brief that when he actually used it in court, it turned out that ChatGPT had just made up a load of these citations and, and uh, this case law and none of it actually existed. But because he didn't know what ChatGPT didn't know, you know, he trusted it. And, it, you know, we're back to that thing of trust in tech implicitly. Even Google, when it launched its own version of of ChatGPT, which it has been working on quietly for a very long time and wasn't quite where it wanted to be um, when ChatGPT hit last November, um, they launched BARD. And during the launch, one of the questions that it had asked BARD turned out to be factually incorrect. So, you know, everybody is getting caught by this. Now, you know, we've seen massive advances now over the last uh, the last few months. Um, and it's getting to the point now where you know, a lot of these things are being ironed out. Um, but, you know, do we really want to trust everything to, to AI? I think that's the, the, the question going forward. And I do think that, you know, it, it while it's been a fantastic toy to play with, you know, the, the companies now are trying to find a way to make this worth your while uh, actually using it, say, from a business point of view. So Amazon recently on its reInvent conference um, in November, started the end of November, start of December, was talking about how you know companies can use AI and bringing in all these safeguards so that companies can not only put their own information into AI models so they can be very personalized to each individual company that information then stays you know within that model and doesn't kind of get sucked into a wider AI glut online so you know that they're their private information is not being compromised. They can put guardrails on it to say, you know, we don't want our AI talking about these particular topics because we've seen companies get caught by that before as well, you know, where where AI was encouraging people to leave their wife or, you know, coming up with some 
random conspiracy theories and spitting them back at people as fact. You know, you don't want to be associated with that as a business. It's fine to kind of play with it online, you know, and say, oh, look, this is, isn't this hilarious what ChatGPT or what Bard is doing? But people generally don't want that, you know, associated with their business. I mean, you think about the billions that's going into this, you know, it has to be right. It has to be, and it has to have some sort of business case. We're hearing a lot about how uh, artificial intelligence needs to be regulated. And the European yes. Union is uh, is certainly looking at this. I think the US is as well. So um, so that it doesn't run out of control and it doesn't end up in the hands of the wrong people. And, and you know, we have these guardrails around it, as you mentioned earlier. So uh, where is that conversation at the moment? Basically, uh, look, it, it's an emerging field. I, we kind of forget how new this particular version of AI is. So look, the, it, we've been talking for a long time about bias and about making sure that if we are going to use artificial intelligence, that we are not kind of integrating systemic bias that will disadvantage people further down the line. So for example, if you are are using AI to uh, to go through job applications, that it's not automatically rejecting people for an arbitrary reason, that then becomes you know part of everybody's AI. So you, you'll find that certain people are being disadvantaged because maybe where they live, maybe a particular educational institution, maybe even their name or their gender. You, know, you don't want that built into a system that people are going to use. I think at this point, you know, it, there's been a lot of talk about what we can do. And, and I think what's feasible is another thing altogether, because this is a fast moving technology and regulations tend not to move very quickly. I mean, we're looking at if you completely aside from this, if you look at something like the um, the e-scooter legislation, how long has that been moving through uh, the doll and how long has that been moving through the various committees? And, you know, we're still at the point where, you know, we need we need something now for AI, but the problem is getting something that's considered that works. That's another uh, that that that's another thing altogether, and that will take time. And what we're going to need at the moment, I think, in in the short term, is all of these companies pulling together to say, "This is what we are going to do with it," um, and this is what we we're not going to do with it. But it's all very well to say that. We, look, you've seen what happened with uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter, uh, X. Elon Musk put out their X's own version of AI and they sold it as, you know, AI with a rebellious streak. Now, to me, that just is, you know, AI that with no guardrails, um, AI that's going to kind of say stuff that maybe necessarily you wouldn't, another platform wouldn't want their AI saying, well, you, and it's, you, to me, that's dangerous. You bring us on to Twitter stroke X, and it's been a rotten year, really, for the company, isn't it? Elon Musk paid $44 billion um, for it, but it's worth nothing like that now, and it's had a... And it's self-inflicted. It's all self-inflicted. All of this could have been avoided. He came in, and he came in, when, I think he set the tone when he came in with uh, holding a sink, so he could make probably a really crap joke uh, it, uh people call it a dad joke it's like uh, you know he was in the building let this sink in and that kind of set the tone and you know immediately started wholesale cuts you cannot do that without having an impact on the business and a detrimental impact on the business at that and we've seen you know they've cut trust and safety teams they cut people who had the expertise to fix things when things went wrong they had to rehire some of those people because things went very badly wrong you saw people who were giving up their lives and sleeping in the office, uh, you know, kind of you know, making the best they could, I suppose, of a bad situation, only to find themselves fired not so long after that. And it really kind of drives the point home is that, you know, he is not there to help 
the staff. He is he is there because you know, he he's making decisions based on what he wants. But what he wants changes on a whim. He brought in Linda Yaccarino, um, an NBC executive, as ostensibly as chief executive of the company. She has been blindsided on so many occasions, including live on stage at a tech conference where she was being interviewed and was informed that, you know, they, that X was going to start charging everybody who wanted to open up a new account a nominal fee to try and fight spam and to fight bots. And that was news to her. Like, she's the chief executive of the company. She shouldn't be finding out about stuff like that yeah. live on stage. You know, and we're being pitched this as, you know, oh, this is transparency in action. It's not. It's a company in meltdown. And we've seen that. You know, we saw Elon Musk's you know, tirade against the advertisers who were abandoning, uh, abandoning X in droves. Yeah, and basically them, him saying, well, you know, this is going to be the death of the company. They are abandoning the company because they are exercising their right to free speech in the same way that he wants people to do on X. And you know, yeah. they have decided they don't want to be associated with it. If all of this is, it, it's all unforced errors. It's all self-inflicted. You know, if he had kept the trust and safety team in place and if they had been trying to deal with the spread of misinformation and disinformation on the platform in the same way that they had you know no they were not they weren't as effective as they could have been in the past but you know people kind of at least appreciate they were trying to do yeah. something misinformation and disinformation is now being spread by the by the owner of the company you know to and he has a massive megaphone and he is retweeting things and pushing accounts out that do have you know and have been kind of have been Pushing did, out yeah, bad did, information in the past. He did tell the uh, advertisers to f off, didn't he? At a New York he Times did, yeah. uh, event. Um, and Laura Slattery, you, you have uh, you two Twitter accounts, uh, <laughs> no less. How are you feeling about it? I don't it know now? how many times over the years that's come up on this podcast. I do still have two Twitter accounts. Or so you're feeling good about Elon Musk accounts. Yeah, it was funny enough. Uh, like a close relative of mine closed um, down their account recently, citing um, Elon Musk's anti-Semitic remarks and. I completely agree that it probably is the right thing to do to uh, to boycott Twitter slash X, and it's probably only a matter of time before, before I, you do I fully abandon it. At the moment, I still feel I need it for work in a weird, strange way, including just sta- you know staring at the self destruction of X itself. Um, I try not to pay too much um, attention to Elon Musk, but I, I think what we've seen over the past year or so is really unprecedented. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it's a 44 billion impulse purchase and, uh, you know, destroying the platform almost seems to have been the point for him. Uh, he, you know, he gets more and more dangerous by the day, I would say. And uh, I have a look- block, Laura. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't. That, I haven't blocked. That's that's very wise. I think I do too, actually, um, just in case. But there are alternative apps. You know, at some point, everyone's going to migrate to one or the other. Threads, You've got, there's threads. Yeah, Meta's threads, and then there's um, Blue Sky as well. Look, the, you know, but, but the the other option, of course, is that social media heyday has has has, has been and, and gone. Maybe so. it'll go away. Maybe we can close down the internet. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. But telling Back to the good telling old Disney, Cliff, what do you what do you think? Back to print, Kieran. Yeah, as a user, I just find it less useful than I did. Yeah. Uh, I find I'm seeing less interesting stuff on my feed. I find I'm getting less uh, constructive feedback to the tweets I send out. Less people seem to be seeing them. Uh, less sane people seem to be responding to them. Getting a lot more weird. Won't use a bad <laughs> word, but nonsense, weird rubbish, <laughs> weird, really weird stuff <laughs> coming back at me. Uh, like Laura, wondering should I bother with it or not. 
I mean, it's possible I'm, that there is a post-Musk existence for this, you know, because the banks, that his lenders, you know, at some point they're going to have to do something. You can't, you can't have Musk telling Disney, one of the last uh, advertisers uh, with the company, the last major advertisers, he's, he's sitting there telling them to F off. Like, you know, there's only one way that's going to go and that's with his lenders um, eventually saying, yeah. hang on, uh, maybe we need to take control of, of, of this and... Um, push it into another existence. And one of the interesting things is, I mean, there isn't one new platform or, or alternative platform, at least, that seems to have got a big win behind it. As you're saying, Laura, there's three or four other names out there and you see people saying they've migrated to this, that or the other, but there doesn't seem to be one that is no. that is winning in that race, does there? No, I don't think so, no. Yeah. Threads, though, could actually do it, I think, because with the it had the initial bump when it opened first. And yes, okay, it kind of tailed off a bit, as to be expected. But, you know, Twitter did not build up a massive following overnight either. Um, the thing is with Threads is that because people are already following a lot of people on Instagram, it automatically populates your 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 uh, following and your followers. And, you know, people can find, and I suppose, the, the topics that they're interested in there. Now, whether or not you're interested in the same topics that you want to see photographs of, that you want to see text updates of, you know, those two probably don't. The Venn diagram of those is probably a bit you know, more sparse. But what I have found is, is that it is easier to find news on Threads now than it is on Twitter slash X slash whatever you want to call it, Elon's vanity project. Um, I find that uh, like the, the like Laura and Cliff that that Twitter is no longer as useful for me as it was, and the kind of the the, the decision to charge people for for the the premium accounts and then to elevate them to the top of everybody's replies has just killed it because it's a lot of the same it's bots and it's a lot of the same people shouting at each other I've had more bot followers on Twitter in the last month I think than I ever have in the history of the platform and threads just seems to be a nicer place and there's one killer feature on threads for me that that Twitter just doesn't have and if I get a response to something that is abusive or whatever I can block it for me but not only hide it for me it hides it for everybody then so you don't get people piling on you don't get people agreeing with them and yeah people will shout echo chamber but you know what I don't tend to stand there I, I don't block people you know, without good cause. But also I don't tend yeah. to stand there and have let somebody shout at me in person either. So I'm not sure why I should do it online. And Threads just seems to, at the moment, be winning the race because Blue Sky, unfortunately, is still invite-based, which means, you know, that the amount of people who can join it is limited. Uh, Kira, one person who got into a, a bit of uh, bother on X was uh, Paddy Cosgrave. Of yes, Web he Summit did. In terms of comments he made about the conflict between Israel and Hamas, and it ultimately led to uh, him having to step down as chief executive of Web Summit. Again, a bit like Ryan Tuberty's departure from RTE, it's something that at the beginning of the year we could never have imagined. No, and you know, it was definitely something I was never expecting to happen. And look, we're used to Paddy. We're used to him generating controversy, uh, especially in the run-up to Web Summit. This all happened about a month out from Web Summit. So if you look at a previous interview he did, you know, because he, he got into a bit of bother, you know, in uh, June, I think May and June, ahead of the conference, collision conference in Toronto. And he did a podcast there and he basically said, look, you know, he has a bad habit of a, a few weeks out from the conference leaning into controversy. So this time he leaned into the Israel and Hamas and Gaza conflict and it did not go well. Um, you know, he initially kind of came out talking about war crimes that, you know, and, and I don't think there's anybody really who disagree with this sentiment, you know, taken outside of the, the, the context of the, the conflict. If you were to just say that by itself, you know, that, that war, that allies should be held accountable for their actions. I don't think there's very few people, there are very many people who would disagree 
with that, that we should be holding people accountable for their actions. I think the timing and the context of it were important. Uh, obviously, things have developed since then. And, you know, people have kind of suggested that maybe he could return to Web Summit. But, you know, in the meantime, obviously, um, they have appointed Catherine Marr, who is the former head of Wikipedia, the Wikimedia Foundation, to run Web Summit. And a few of the things that, that she did initially was, you know, one of the things, the, the first kind of decisions that she seemed to have made was they cut off the ditch media funding that had been put in place by um, by Web Summit earlier this year. Um because, you know, as she said to me, it didn't make sense uh, because it's not a tech publication that might have made more sense, but it just didn't seem they wanted to concentrate on their core uh, function, which is putting on tech events. And, you know, Web Summit itself, obviously, there were some notable of absences this year because a lot of speakers dropped out. Uh, some of the high profile sponsors, Google, Intel, Siemens, Amazon, Web Services, Stripe, they all dropped out of the event in the run up to it uh, before Paddy had resigned. Uh, a couple dropped but out afterwards. But as a result of his comments, uh, it must be... Uh, as a result, yes, stressed. as a result yeah. of what he had said because look, it made it very difficult, particularly for multinationals, you know, obviously in the US. The, Actually, Kara, uh, the, one thing struck me about uh, Web Summit without Paddy is, is that Web Summit isn't that interesting without Paddy. Um, it's just another technology event. Paddy gave it something. He sprinkled a bit of stardust on it or something or a bit of controversy which required you to take notice of it and required you to pay attention to it but actually if you take them out of it it's just another tech event I think yeah for, particularly for Irish publications and from an Irish point of view yes once Paddy was gone there wasn't that what is he going to say kind of element to it anymore who is he going to bring on stage what's he going to do this year because there was always that thing of you know there, there was waiting for him to do something like bring somebody random on the stage to talk about you know the the Leo Varadkar story Um this year, I, I did get the very weird kind of feeling that as I walked into it, and I haven't been at Web Summit for six years, so this is my first time back there in a while, but it was like walking into any other tech conference. Like, can we go to Mobile World Congress, you know, which is gigantic. And Web Summit is huge, but yeah, a lot of it, you know, th there wasn't the same kind of Irish feel to it that we would have had, probably because obviously Paddy was there. You know, th you know it is an Irish team still behind it, but... There isn't the same kind of, you know, the, the the mystery to it. It is very much like any other web, any other event focused on startups. But you know, it could it could be run by any company rather than having that Irish link to it. Um, and you know, mate, that's not a bad thing for Web Summit itself because you know, at the end of the day, there are three hundred people employed in that company, and it needs to keep going to make sure that these people have jobs. You know, to to to, to keep them going. Um, and it is a successful event. But I suppose, yeah, from an Irish point of view, it no longer has that kind of controversial element to it. Um, whether or not that will be a, a good thing or a bad thing for the company, for the, the yeah. event going forward, you know, we'll see next year, you know, can it persuade those sponsors to return? Does it even want to persuade those sponsors to return? Or is it going to kind of find an alternate route to, you know, to, to making the money that it needs to stay in business? Cliff, uh, just looking out to 2024, um, what do you think is going to be the big story of the year? I suppose uh, the European economy and what's going to happen there is going to be a really big story. When are interest rates going to start coming down? By the summer, I'd say a lot of the big investment banks now are betting on March. I think that probably looks like a bit of a stretch because that's only two ECB meetings away. And I think there are people on the ECB council, the more cautious ones. The, the so-called hawks who are going to want to hold on till the summer. So is the compromise going to be the first cut in April or are they going to wait for June? But maybe that's not going to be too important for mortgage holders because I think the direction now is very much downwards. Just go through the figures again. What, what, what's the ECB mortgage rate now? 
Well, the ECB after ten increases. Uh, the ECB deposit rate is four percent, and the the uh, so-called refinancing rate, the one with the tracker rates are priced off, is four and a half. Four and a half. Okay. So rates have gone up by four and a half points yeah. uh, since they started in the summer of uh, 2022, and about two points of that was in uh, was this year in 2023. Right. And of course, that was gradually fed well fed through immediately to tracker holders and fed through more slowly, if you like, to, to other borrowers. So it's being... Yeah, because uh, a lot of them fixed contracts. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So at the end of next year, what would you, what, what would your expectation be? Uh, where would that 4.5% be at? Well, you're putting, me, you're putting me on the spot now. Uh, I think the 4.5%, the refinancing rate next year, the end of next year, should certainly be at 3 3 uh, okay. So I think we're going to see a pretty big... <laughs> 150 cut. basis points. Yeah. I think lower so, yeah. Than, yeah. than where it's at at the moment. That's interesting now. So I mean, it could be, you know, could that be by January of the following year or whatever? But I think within that kind of time frame, 12, 13 months, the okay. markets are, that's what the markets are looking for. In fact, the markets are looking for something slightly more than that at the so moment. So some, some positive news there if, uh, if people are looking to... Yeah, good for trackers straight off. Sure. I see um, Laura waving there. She's obviously on the tracker. Variable rates haven't gone up so much. <laughs> so could there be more increases there? Possibly. But I think the banks will probably try and hold off in terms of fixed rates, I think it'll be interesting to watch the offers there. So people coming off fixed rates are certainly going to face yeah, what very significant increases. Well, it's a, a tricky it's a real one. Dilemma, it is a dilemma for them, yeah. And, you know, I think part of it depends on what time next year they're going to be coming off their, their fixed rate. But one of the good things Let's is, say they're coming off in the first half of, of the year. You don't expect movement in the yeah, first but, half but of the year. Of course, so what should what, they do? A lot of them will be looking to fix again, I guess. And the fixed rates that they'd be looking to yeah. to come on to, if you like, are, are, are going to be based on market rates. They're, they're priced off market rates, if you like, rather than off the ECB rate itself, although the two do tend to move. And there has been a pretty significant fall off in market rates over the last few weeks. So hopefully, from the point of view of those borrowers, we may start to see those rates start to edge back a bit. Banks looking for market share, trying to hold on to the borrowers that they have who are refinancing their loans, uh, trying to fight off kind of the competition from uh, the likes of Avant, who are offering lower rates at the moment. Um, so I think it'll, it'll be an interesting market to watch. You know, could there be a case, for example, for people coming off early next year to go on to a variable rate for a time if their bank offers a reasonable one and, and wait to see what happens with fixed rates? There might be. Um, equally, if the fixed rates come down quickly, there, there could be a case to, to, to lock in. But... I think it's a complex enough picture depending on, on the size of the loan and what happens in the market next year. Uh, a bit of professional advice when it comes to it could be important for borrowers because there are differences as well. You know, if, if you fix if you fix, you have less flexibility. If you're variable rate, you have a bit more flexibility in terms of paying off part of the loan. Um, what rate do you pick? Do you fix? How long do you fix for? Does your LTV rate now, your loan-to-value rate, yeah. entitle you to a... To a, to a lower cost <laughs> if you've dickied up your house as Simon Harris would say and you've managed to get a better BER rating you may qualify for a better loan a green loan yeah, a green, green loan from AIB or Bank of Ireland they're very good rates uh, on offer for those at the moment so there's a, there's a lot of moving parts there so I think very it's much interesting about the green loans as well Cliff isn't it because at some point people are going to wake up to the fact that uh, you paid a lot of money for a drafty house, maybe, and uh, <laughs> tell me about it. You're paying you're paying a lot more on your mortgage than the person who has a, an A-rated house. Yeah. Now, they might have paid a lot of money for their A-rated house as well, but you know, in terms of social cohesion, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. We might get to a point 
where people start to notice this kind of stuff. That's true, uh, yeah. And we, we get a bit of rancor uh, towards the banks around it. Uh, maybe not rancor towards the banks, but I suppose one of the, what, what might fill that gap would be more generous state incentives to help people to, to do up their houses or to make their, their houses more energy efficient. I think the government's going to be under pressure to do that over the, over the coming years because the costs of putting on the panels and particularly the costs of insulation are, are high and the payback period is long. Uh, and I think what we've seen is that only the better off sections of the population have been able to has been, have been able to invest in that because it's not a short term return, uh, and maybe the state could give people a bit more of a dig out in terms of uh, in terms of closing that gap, helping us to meet our climate targets as we go along. Yeah, I wonder though. I think if people are seeing you know somebody on the green mortgage is able to get it at three and a half percent, let's yeah. say for yeah, argument's yeah. sake, and. I have to pay four and a half percent. I've got a drafty house and I've yeah. high energy bills and all of that. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, <clears throat> and I bailed out AIB and I bailed <laughs> out Bank of Ireland. You know, I think people will people will look for a reason to be annoyed at the banks. That's for sure. Well, yes, yeah. and and possibly with good reason. Well, we have a general election. And I think just just before we finish on that, I think uh, I think there is scope there, or there will be scope soon for the banks to bring down their to start looking at their fixed offers. They've they've increased them about by about two and a quarter percent. Over the course of the uh, of the crisis, now that isn't as much as ECB rates have gone up, but as I say, the market rates they're they're priced off have started to come down fairly significantly. So I think if there's a bit of pressure to come on the banks next year, maybe that's an area that's maybe that's the area it's going to come in because there's going to be seventy thousand people next year refinancing, coming off a fixed rate. A lot of them are newer, younger borrowers with big loans. They could be facing increased repayments of you know two fifty, three hundred a month as things stand. Uh, and it'd be nice to see them, the pain for them, kind of be a little bit eased if if the fixed rates are come down a bit, or, or there are some special offers from the banks, in the, you know, to, to to help them in over the next year or so. In your view, will we have a general election in twenty four? Yeah, I've been in a twenty four uh, general election person for a while now, but I don't have any special insight into it. And I think there's a lot of comings and goings. It was it's an f- important. Uh, it is. Yeah, it will be an, an important event because it will be. You know, if you take the polls at the moment. Yeah, it looks like Sinn Fein will be in government. Quite possibly, next, yeah. Next yeah, time I now. mean, the question is, who, shaping up. who are they going to go in with? Will they change, go, of course. Will they go in with Fianna Fáil? Will they be able to get the numbers that way? Unlikely, I think, on current numbers, that they, there would be a left government. Um, so it's going to be interesting one to watch. An important one for business, an important one for consumers. Um, there was a fuss in Leinster House there a few months ago that maybe there might be an election in the in the spring. Wouldn't, certainly wouldn't rule that out. Um, the alternative theory is, you know, wait till the budget, another another budget, and uh, hopefully, from the government's point of view, a generous one, and go after that. Uh, theory number three is wait till early 2025 because there haven't been that many early elections, you know, in recent years. I'd certainly be in the earlier camp, I think, but 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 who knows? Yeah, do you think Mary Lou Macdonald has done Sinn Fein any favours by talking about wanting Dublin house prices to come down towards 300 grand? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I think she's she has a view on our market, which is younger aspirant home buyers, and she perhaps reckons that the older, a lot of the older generation, you know, aren't going to be Sinn Fein voters anyway, or may reckon that okay, if my house price comes down, at least my children are going to be able to afford a house. That's going to be better for for the family, if you like, and and, and will live with it. Uh, perhaps the risk is uh, looking at kind of younger people who've bought houses over the next four, last four or five years who might then be plunged into negative equity, uh, some of whom might 
Sinn Féin might hope would be would would, would be it's their a bit voters more as than well, that though, isn't it? Because it, it comes in around economic sentiment. It if does. Prices yeah. are falling yeah. to that degree. Yeah, I there's think there's a sentiment at, at, at play here. Well, I think yeah. previously, you know, when house prices have fallen, it's because the the economy has been in recession. Yeah, I'm actually writing a piece about this. this writing about a piece about this uh, for uh, for online and for Fridays uh, for Friday's paper and. Um, that's exactly the point, I think, that the only thing that would be likely to reduce house prices to that extent would be a recession, uh, a big fall off in demand. Now, I know that that clearly isn't what Mary Lou MacDonald had in, in mind. And I suppose in fairness to her, she didn't say over what time period she believed this could be achieved. So presumably Sinn Féin believes that an increase in supply, which it says it can achieve, would lead to a gradual fall off in, 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 in prices. Uh, over over yet, a period of we've years, had, but we've had an increase in supply over the no, last. No, it hasn't, years. and a few experts I was talking to this morning are pointing out that despite the fact that interest rates have gone up ten times over the last yeah. uh, eighteen months, house prices have still held steady. Two point three percent increase, small fall in Dublin, effectively a stabilisation of prices in Dublin. So achieving a big fall in house prices is going to would be would be would be a really difficult ask. I think no harm to I think to aim for lower prices, to aspire to lower prices to some extent. Uh, but stability, some kind of stability, and maybe a gradual glide down in prices would be, uh, or a glide down in the real level of prices, perhaps as they stabilise and people's wages go up, uh, would be a more likely route forward. I would have thought than looking for a big, a big drop off. Laura Slattery, what are you expecting to be the big story of 2024 for the media sector? Well. Slightly alarmingly, I would say that we're probably going to see more of that AI theme and that idea that it's a threat to um, jobs, but also just the very kind of conceptual idea of the the creative process. Um, So across the music, uh, audiovisual entertainment industries, I think they're all going to be grappling um, with, with technology in effect and trying to get the best out of it and use it to their own advantage, but see off um, really uh, the, the very real prospect of wholesale copyright abuse um, that it that it poses. Um, you know, it hasn't. You know, we've we've spoken about RTE and the saga there, and you know that there's more to come there. There's several more reports that are due to be published. Um, we haven't had any solution yet to the uh, license fee question Um, and there is still a sense I think that it's all to play for but but very very perilous Um, but the rest of the media isn't in great shakes either Um, so I it's 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 a sort of a a, a typically (laughs) um, mixed picture but I'm always slightly pessimistic about these things. So I wouldn't be, um, you know, hoping for uh, a miracle just yet. By the way, what's your verdict on Patrick Keelty as the Late Late Show host? Oh, well, um, I think he's quite good. (laughs) That sounds like faint praise, but there's definitely some things he's good at. He he can be very funny. Um, They've tried a few different things with the format. Maybe some of them have worked, some of them haven't. Um, there's a shorter show, which is which is definitely a, a positive. Um, he was great as the host of the toy show, and that brought in 
huge numbers and we haven't got the final consolidated figure for it yet but it looks like it beat many of the Ryan Tuberty uh, toy shows it was certainly right up there near the top of the most watched programs on Irish television um, this century I think possibly it won't beat the two um, pandemic toy shows that Tuberty presented but Orti would be really happy with that um, otherwise the figures are a little more subdued and flattered by the fact that it is a shorter programme so you don't have to cope with a average tailing off you know after 11pm but uh, it, it's it, I think I think the question is whether or not he still has the energy for it in a, in a year's time but uh, you know, as it happened like you know it was very fortunate for Orti that, that you know Turbidy uh had left by the time the scandal broke and had stepped down and that this plan was in place um, by that time. Um, and I think he as well, you can see through Patrick Healty that, you know, he did always want to do the job, it just didn't work out before. So he's brought, you know, that enthusiasm to it. So it's whether or not he can keep that up is is, is the question. But um, to go back to general elections, I mean, <laughs> they're quite costly for RTE as well. That's another million on the costs. Uh, and I think it is actually almost... Not, not quite factoring that in, but it's certain there's loads of elections next year anyway happening uh, everywhere. US, Europe so on, and yeah. US everywhere. So Possibly UK. It's, it's a costly business to cover that editorially. Uh, and then the prospect of a Sinn Féin government isn't something necessarily that or, to e, uh, or anyone in the media uh, industry would be just 100% comfortable with just purely because of the um, number of uh, legal cases that uh, the party or members of the party have taken um, in in recent times. Um, so there could be more tensions there. I mean, look, there's always tensions between uh, politicians and, and the media, but um, I think it's fair to say that that idea of Sinn Féin in power, you know, might worry a few people. OK. On that note, we'll leave it there. Laura Slattery, Cliff Taylor and Kira Bryan, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Laura Slattery, Cliff Taylor and Kira O'Brien for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on X, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, happy Christmas. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world.